Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Chris McDaniel, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio is probably a cold... Jason Rosenbaum? I'm not that cold. It's like 30 degrees outside. It's pretty cold. I'm used to that. I'm from Chicago, so... (laughs) And? At Joe Manis. And our special guest this week? Eric Schmidt. Yes, uh, state senator who... As Jason pointed out before we recorded, I did not rec- remember this, but our— He was our first guest ever on the yes. show, yes. and we've now come full circle. So this will be the last show with guests. Uh, yeah, <laughs> we're, we're actually a, just sh- shutting down the show. That'll be a to about for, half a dozen people I, we've I'm got kidding. lined up. We're, we're going to have, like, thousands more guests. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just the first in the most recent. Yes. That's no, but yeah, but he does— Deserve noteworthy because he was the one willing to come on as the experiment. The guinea pig. (laughs) (laughs) So let's get down into it. Um, Just last week, we had the result of the county executive race. Um, Your friend, and I believe you actually had a role uh, in the race, Rick Stream, uh, came up short. What do you think was the takeaway? What do you think caused him to come up short? Well, it was an incredibly close race. And you know, my assessment of, of the county executive race in a non-presidential year, which is when the St. Louis County executive race is held, um, is that it's a different it's a different kind of turnout model, generally speaking. Um, Rick Stream, for me, who is someone that I served with and uh, also is a state representative within my Senate district, mm-hmm. is someone that I have a great deal of respect for, not just um, because of all the responsibilities he's taken on as budget chairman, but just the person that he is. He's an incredibly um, good guy. And in politics, that matter, that still matters to me. Um, and we share a lot of priorities in the budget in particular. You know, aside from being you know, fiscal conservatives, we do um, try to advocate for things in the budget like services for developmental disabilities, um, autism services, those kinds of things. So we share a lot in common. I thought he was a great candidate. And um, so regardless of what the polling may have indicated initially or at the end, he was somebody that I was going to support because I think he'd, you just need to support your friends. He would have done an incredible job. He ran a really close race. I'm proud of the race that he ran. He really reached out to a lot of groups that maybe traditionally Republicans hadn't reached out to. And at the end of the day, came up about, what, 1,700 votes yes, short. Pretty short. And, um, and, you know, there were... Um, libertarian votes in there. There was, you know, write-in votes that accounted for 3,700 votes. That just shows you how close the race really was. But I thought he ran a good race, and I wish Steve Stanger all the best. I'll, um, you know, dedicated to working with him as a St. Louis County senator to try to move an agenda forward that serves our, our mutual constituents. But uh, but I thought Rick ran a great race and, and somebody that I was very proud to support. Now, do you see the fact that there were these write-ins and, like, the libertarian... As I mean, in effect, they were spoilers. I mean, do you, do you think if any of those had not been running, that those votes likely would have gone to stream? I think particularly the write-in votes. Yeah, um, that would be my assessment. And um, what I think was important is that Rick was really competing, you know, for those votes. And I just think that's a good lesson for for anybody running for office is that you just don't take any any person for granted. Um, you do your best to reach out to who you can and explain to them who you are, why you're running. Uh, why it's important that your vision is implemented. And I thought Rick did a good job with that. But, yeah, I think that those, you know, probably took away from Rick's total um, vote count. That would be my view. So he lost by about 1,700. The Libertarian candidate actually received more than 8,000 votes. And then the Constitution Party candidate, uh, about 3,200, and then about 3,700 write-ins. So yeah, a lot of votes. We're talking about 15,000 votes. Yeah, yeah. And, that, and really set in 1,700 votes is really two votes per 
polling place. Yeah. I mean, that's not that's just yeah. not a lot of votes. I want to ask a broader question, though. I mean, Tuesday was was a pretty darn good night for Republicans statewide. Pretty darn one. one. For pretty, pretty darn one. Yeah. I mean, Je- <laughs> the, the blowout in Jefferson County, I think you could say without hyperbole, was historic. There's now no uh, state legislators from northeast Missouri who are Democratic anymore. But it seemed like St. Louis County was like the one place where Republicans may have d- could have done a little bit better, although they did unseat Vicki England in South County. The, the fact remains that Jill Shoup won her race. Steve Sanger won his race. Um, Tracy McCreary won her race. And Deb Lavender. Deb Lavender won the Kirkwood race. And uh, Bill Otto won the race to represent my grandpa, by the way. Why do you think that the Republicans couldn't gain a foothold in St. Louis County, even though they were doing well? Elsewhere, well, I think um, St. Louis County is uh, is an area where you have a lot of independent voters. Um, I think that you have a lot of Republicans. There's still more Republican voters in St. Louis County than anywhere else in the state. Um, but you also have a lot of independent voters, which I think is why you see a lot of candidates who are running statewide spend the last couple weeks of their campaign in places like Kirkwood or Creve Corps, because there's a lot of uh, independent voters that are making their decisions um, at a different pace and, you know, just a little bit differently than, you know, folks who are clearly identified as Republicans or Democrats. Um, I think, you know, if you look at it, um, you know, just a few years ago, there were four Republican senators in St. Louis County. Um, now, I suppose I'm the only one that actually resides in St. Yeah, Louis County. Yeah, I think you are. Um, yes. But I, I think that that's probably more of a function of the way the districts um, are drawn uh, more than anything else. I think if you've – one of the positive takeaways, I think, as a Republican is that the last two county executive races – where you've had two credible Republicans running, they've really competed and had two very close elections. And so I think that's good. I think it's important for, um, you know, Republicans to be to be willing to compete. Um, and in the House, you know, you kind of swapped the Rick Stream seat for the Gloria Brown seat in some ways, right. which is kind of central southwest St. Louis County and then more of a South County district. And then the 24th was incredibly competitive. I think that was like 1,600 votes. So I think that the takeaway is that most of the seats in St. Louis County are very, very competitive seats, and um, you just have to compete wherever you can. Is there anything that Republicans think they might take as a lesson from this last time, or do you guys feel that, hey, we did the best that we could do as far as the message and the ground game? Well, I think if you look at it more from a from a national perspective in the broader sense, there was a clear rejection, right. in my view, of the Obama agenda, um, whether that be Obamacare or a lot of his other policies. I think once you get to a local race like um, county executive, a lot of it has to do with competency, and individual candidates matter a lot. So I think for us, we just have to continue to, to put forth really solid candidates um, who are you know competing in that marketplace of ideas that are smart, that are credible, and that uh, are willing to run a, um, a tough campaign. And then you let the chips fall where they may. But I think one, one takeaway is that uh, Republicans um, – can compete in St. Louis County and can do very well with good candidates. Do you think that uh, Representative Stream will run for your Senate seat in two years? I don't know. Um, I uh, was obviously there that night and uh, gave Rick a big hug and, and told him I was proud of him and have since, you know, um, sent him text messages and let him know I'm thinking <laughs> about him. But uh, I think Rick will be fine. As to what he wants to do, I mean, that's going to be his his timetable. Yeah, because um, I think that's a big decision. If he, for some reason, decides not to run for that seat, I think you know, 10,000 other Republicans will. I don't know necessarily if he'll be unopposed per se, but he'll clearly be a strong favorite for that seat, which I think has become more Republican after redistricting. So it, 
I guess we're looking ahead a little bit. So yeah, possibly because I think I, I think though couldn't Democrats make a pitch for that seat? Um, I think after the most recent round of redistricting, that's probably you could put more kind of in the safe category. Now yeah, when well, I that's ran what I was thinking, when I ran the first just... time in two thousand and eight, it was truly a swing district because it went yes. from the city line to say Manchester, and if it, just to put this in perspective on a map, the corridor is essentially Manchester Road to the north, kind of 44 Gravoy to the south, extending east and west. So the first time I ran in 2008, it was a tough year to be a Republican. Um, we ended up winning by, you know, 10 points, but that was a, but Obama won that district that year too. Right. So that was a swing district. And then what happened with the most recent round of redistricting, the 15th kind of shifted westward. So Glendale, where I live, is kind of the easternmost municipality, and now it goes all the way out to Wildwood. Yeah, and a lot of the, the eastern parts got shifted to the first district, right. first. Which, which was competitive in 12 and now will be competitive in 16 because there will be an open seat. That's exactly right because Webster – I mean the biggest difference is Webster Groves, those areas were, are now in the first that were traditionally in the 15th. Right. So, But let's, let's kind of get out of this uh, state legislative minutia. You have made a big decision on your political future. About a few months ago. Um, yeah. You will be running for state treasurer in 2016. Uh, just a quick backdrop. Um, the current treasurer, Clint Zweifel, is actually term limited. He cannot run again. I think this is one of the few offices besides Two. governor. There's only one, governor which, and treasurer. Which is term limited. I'm not exactly sure why, but I'm sure it has some reasoning for it. Um, what what kind of prompted you to get into that race? Well, as um, as I really, you know, I, I am, um, you have eight years in the Senate if you get reelected and I'm still very much committed to making, you know, the last 25 percent of that time very worthwhile for the policies that I want to fight for. But as you look forward, you know, public service has been a very important thing to me. And uh, going back to um, not to slip in the high school question here at all, but when <laughs> when I was at DeSmet, um, it, it's a Jesuit high school. And not to slip it I in. didn't mean to do that, but it is part of my past here. But um but, you know, they, I, I always say the Jesuits did a very good job of redirecting a lot of my energy. And so um, they, uh, uh, we had, you know, service projects in high school. Um, the idea of giving back and, and being a part of the community was something that was um, certainly emphasized and something that I came to believe in very strongly. When I went to college at Truman State, I founded a Habitat for Humanity chapter up there. And then as I was a young lawyer, I, I you know, sort of um, was involved with the public service arm of the Missouri Bar and did some some things across the state. So that's always been part of who I am. And so as I looked forward, I wanted to, you know, Jamie and I, and Jamie is a very important part of this decision-making process. We just decided that um, there was more to do. And, um, and I really took a good hard look at the issues I focused on in the legislature. A lot of them have been fiscal issues, whether it's trying to promote, you know, private job creation policies or lowering the tax burden and giving people more of their hard-earned money back or making sure the state is run um, efficiently. The treasurer's office, there's a lot of natural alignment with that. And in addition to the day-to-day duties in some of the programs that it administers, it is a platform to continue to talk about those issues. And so that office, to me, was something that made a lot of sense. And on you know July 2nd, I think it was, um, announced my candidacy, and we're kind of three or four months into it yeah. now. And and um, just trying to communicate with the voters as best I can and get off to a good start. Now, you've you, you've sort of already put you in a fairly strong position, A, because you've taken – you have some big donors, including Greg Singfeld, who have given you a big financial edge. And so far, there's been no other Republican or Democrat who has announced that they – May challenge and one of the you. potential Democrats who could have run against you, who may still run against you, John Wright, a state representative from Roachport, lost re-election 
last Tuesday, which I think probably put a hit on his statewide plans. But yeah, so I've um, the timing. Everybody has their own um, way of assessing when is the right time. And for me, it was important to um, to try to get out early and run as strong of a campaign as as I can. Um, statewide offices for um, it has there haven't been a lot of successes in recent memory for Republicans running statewide. So I wanted to make sure that uh, felt like I owed it to my family and the people that were going to support me to get out there early and do the best I can to run as strong of a race as early as I as I could. And so um, this decision that I made it's been it's been a good start. It's been you know it's it's been fun. It's so far. I mean it's a long road between now and Correct. 2016, but. You know, being able to get, um, you know, 50 plus endorsements from House members and most of my Senate colleagues. And then today we announced, um, you know, the two living treasurers that Republicans, Wendell Bailey and Sarah Steelman, are, are supporting me. So that stuff's it's been a lot of fun. And as you continue to get out there and meet more and pe- more and more people, um, it's a, it's an effort worth pursuing and i'm excited now are you offering to be as colorful as wendell Bailey? <laughs> i don't know if who that's once possible rode a horse into the capitol and it slid across the marble floor <laughs> i don't know if i can accomplish that I, I was telling you earlier i i went to his birthday party in willow springs and uh he is still very active still very energetic he's 74 and uh was introducing me to a couple hundred people in a matter of about 20 minutes so he's he's uh he's still very uh, doing very well so you brought up statewide Republicans not doing very well, and in 2012, they only Lieutenant Governor Peter Kender was successful. Why do you think that was, and why do you think you will be successful when you run in 2016? Um, it's hard to say. I mean, I think a lot of times uh, there are um, incumbents running, you know, maybe that um, that have a certain advantage early than than challengers. I mean, this you know this is a open seat, um, which yeah. is certainly. Um, um, not a bad thing. Um, and I, I think that um, all I can do, it, which is interesting because in the 80s, you know, you had an overwhelming Democrat legislature and all Republican statewide. So yes. um, it, I think a lot of it has to do with just getting out there, um, doing the best you can, working as hard as you can, as early as you can, and, uh, you know, not looking back. And that's the decision that I've made. You know, as far as all the factors that will go into it, um, like I said, it's a long way between now and 2016. And um, I'm sure there will be challenges, surprises along the way. But um, it's a good start so far. So I was kind of alluding to this before we went on the air. But there was kind of a riddle of the three Republican lawyers that I like to call. It was you, Senator Kurt Schaefer, and House Speaker Tim Jones. All three of you have – had, I think, a, before you announced for treasurer, about a million dollars on hand. You were all kind of placed into this thought that maybe you all were going to run against attorney general, against each other. Now, flash forward to today, you're running for treasurer, Kurt Schaefer is running for attorney general, and Tim Jones has decided not to run for anything. Did you ever think about running for attorney general? Did you talk with any of those three? And what benefit do you think it has now that these three candidates that may have wasted a lot of money and caused a lot of negativity running against each other are now not going to run against each other. Yeah, so I, uh, I, I've i always had a very good relationship with both uh, Senator Schaefer and um, Speaker Jones. Um, we have... I've been maintained a, a you know a friendship with both of them and and tried to stay in constant communication about what you know my decision process would be, um, but really at the end of the day, um, this, this is a decision um, about what you want to do potentially with the next decade of your life, and so it's a very and, and as a, a, a you know as, as a husband um, married to a, a, um, a saint Jamie um, and then three young children. 
um, and one with special needs, Stephen, you know, this is a, was a very important decision that we took seriously as a family. And that's kind of what was the guiding force for me is what, what made the most sense? How did, how did I feel like I could best serve my state? And what was the office um, that, that made the most sense? And so um, there, there was, you know, there wasn't any, um, uh, anything other than, you know, trying to make the best decision at the time. Um, Senator Schaefer had already announced for attorney general. But for me, as I said earlier, when you look at the things that I've really focused on and principally, you know, eliminating the corporate franchise tax, being an author of the largest tax cut in the history of the state, those are the issues, not, not exclusively, but the issues I've spent a lot of time on. I think the treasurer's office was a, was a natural fit. There's a lot of natural alignment. And then, you know, and, and Speaker Jones has made a decision and, and he's a great guy, and I and I wish him all the best as he you know pursues his next endeavor. Now, in the county executive's race, the that tax cut bill actually became an issue with Stinger slamming Stream for voting for it, saying how it is how it well kind of echoing the governor's contention that it may end up really hurting the state down the road, pointing to Kansas. Now, now that it's been what six months since it passed, um, looking ahead and assessing the field, how do you think the tax cut is going to work out? Um, well, I, so as a philosophical um, perspective, I just think um, if you can side on, on, you know, if you can be on the side of the people who can allow, you allow them to keep more of their own money, I do think that's a, that's a way to grow our economy. And I think anytime you've ever seen broad-based tax relief, like, like what we passed in the General Assembly the last couple years, that has led to economic expansion. That's an irrefutable argument. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about the Kansas our, the Kansas tax cuts. Ours are very different than Kansas. Um, they're phased in over a period of time and tied to you know revenue growth. So in, in many ways, we're sort of returning revenue growth back to taxpayers over time, which is a little bit different. But I would point out that no incumbent Republican lost uh, in 2014 who – voted for the tax cut and the tax cut override, and a lot of the governors that have pursued this agenda nationally were also, I think, vindicated by the idea that, that voters rewarded them for pursuing, um, you know, tax reduction policies. And so I think the voters have the ultimate say, but in 2014, I think they supported that agenda. And and at the end of the day, we have larger majorities now in the General Assembly than we did before we pursued the tax cut. And uh, you know, the ballot box is the ultimate um, poll, and I think the voters spoke pretty is it, clearly. Is it possible that there could be even more tax cutting now that Republicans have even larger majorities, or is the tax cut uh, debate kind of over for now? You know, I can only speak for myself. I'd like for us to continue to pursue um, tax cuts. I think that um, it is a core fundamental belief, not just of Republicans, but a lot of people who are, you know, independent or moderate Democrats believe that that uh, is a good a uh, policy uh, to pursue. Uh, we'll see how that ultimately plays out, but I think that's something that we ought to continue to look at, how we might be able to make the the, uh, the tax code more fair and allow people to keep more of their own money. I'm not sure how many independent or moderate Democrats there are left in the legislature, <laughs> maybe like two. I'm not even joking, but... I, under, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, no, I, I think it's I think it's something you know worth pursuing, but we'll see. Um, you know, every every issue sometimes has its own energy, and we'll kind of have to wait and see what 2015. How do you think brings. Amendment 10? Because now that kind of restricts the governor's ability to withhold money, and uh, you know, in the fight over whether or not to fully fund the education foundation formula, how's it going to fit into things the next couple of years? Because you're going to be in the center of some of that. Yeah, I think. So the real frustration in in many ways that led to Amendment 10 and the voters ultimately approving it has been 
what has really been, I think, a um, uh, without proper cause, a lot of withholds by the governor of really you know important programs that the General Assembly has approved. Um, the revenues are there to support them. Uh, in fact, even when we went back into veto session, veto session and took the unprecedented act of overriding the governor on a lot of these line item vetoes and saying emphatically that these are the priorities um, of the General Assembly, the governors continued to withhold money and, and in many ways played a very political game of pitting groups against one another when he doesn't really have the constitutional ability to withhold those dollars. So I think this was kind of a repudiation of those very political uh, practices that the governor has employed here with the budget and get us back uh, to the place that we should be, which is the General Assembly's job is to appropriate dollars through the budget process. It's the only thing we're required to do. It's perhaps the most important thing that we do every year. It's a, it's a testament to what our priorities are as a state. And the governor's job is to sort of manage that as the year goes on once we leave. It is not to unilaterally make decisions and withhold money that the General Assembly has appropriated when there's the money there to go to those particular places. So um, I, I think the voters understood that. I think that uh, it, it has been used, those withholds uh, and vetoes this time were used as leverage on issues like tax policy, where I just don't think those um, those don't belong in the same discussion. So next year, um, besides tax cuts and besides the impact of Amendment 10, I think one of the big issues will be kind of the, the fallout from the Ferguson situation. Um, we're, we're, I guess we're recording this on, what, November 11th. There's still no grand jury decision yet. But regardless of what happens, I still think there's a lot of public policy ground to cover. We've asked a lot of guests, especially Republicans who are going to control the legislature, what their thoughts about state legislative public policy changes would be. Uh, I'm kind of interested in what you're going to be looking for and whether Republicans are going to be actively trying to change a lot of state policies because of what happened on August 9th. Well, first off, uh, you know, as as a native son of North County, um, having grown up there, my parents still live in North County. The, the entire situation and how it's unfolded has just uh, been incredibly sad. And I think for the region, for us to move forward, you know, after what happens is going to happen, it's going to take a lot of leadership. It's going to take a lot of courage. It's going to take a lot of us working together to try to move the region forward, um, to try to heal many of the divides that have either been created or been out there but now exposed because of, you know, some of the events. So what does that mean for the legislature? Well, one thing that I intend to pursue next year, and as an attorney and seeing some of this stuff over the years, I do think that there um, is, a, is a need for municipal court reform. I think this is long overdue. You have a lot of uh, municipal courts that are being used to um, uh, as revenue generation, and in many ways, Placing citizens and police officers in an, un an unfortunate situation where their their main course of interaction is with a speeding ticket, or and that's not to justify anybody breaking the law, but um, you know, a good example is and my grandmother still lives in Saint Anne. When Northwest Plaza was Northwest Plaza, there weren't any police cars on Highway 70. Now there are police cars on Highway 70, and there is no mall. So I don't think you need to be a rocket scientist to figure out sort of what's going on in a lot of these communities. And I think it's going to take a lot of independence of legislators, regardless of their party, to want to tackle an issue that is really, really important. As I said earlier, I think it just puts people in an awkward position. There's not a lot of police officers that I know that wanted to become police officers so they could write a lot of traffic tickets. I mean, I think they wanted to be, you know, sort of in this community policing arena. And there's a lot of work for us to do. 
So what can what can the legislature do specifically when it comes to municipal courts? Well, one thing is right now we have the Max Creek Law, which says that you can't have more than thirty percent of your revenue derived from you know traffic and traffic tickets and fines. I think that ought to be lowered. And well, has it even been enforced? I mean, that's, that's a good question. I don't think that it has. Um, Auditor Schweik is going to be doing an audit of some of the municipalities that I believe are over in the information I've seen that are over thirty yeah. percent. And I think this is an issue. Um, you know, I, I, I sometimes I view the the politi- you know political ideology less as a linear spectrum, but more circular. And I do think that this is um, an issue where conservatives and liberals can come together to recognize that there are some injustices that are taking place through this system and work to remedy it. I think one of the ways would be um, lowering that uh, number so that um, you know. If you have a tax base, that's great, um, but you shouldn't be, you know, punishing people that are that are visiting or or in your community to a, to a disproportionate degree, you know, based on traffic tickets. There are some other things, and I intend to work with and have had conversations with some municipal judges about, you know, some protocols and just making the courts more open, uh, more inviting um, to people. Because you know, one of the situations that you know, you've got a lot of, uh, um, you know. Uh, You've got a lot of uh, when you have a missed court date, for example, for example, you know, if a bench warrant is an issue, somebody goes to jail, they potentially for, you know, for a traffic ticket and failure to appear. And then they, um, uh, you know, end up in jail. They miss work. They might lose their apartment. And I don't think that's the best way for us to try to deal with, you know, some of these issues. So these are. In many ways, um, I, we'll see how it all comes together. But I do think you've got like Arch, you know, Arch City Defenders. I've met with them, the SLU Law Clinic. You've got some other groups that are some conservative groups that would like to see some reform. So hopefully we can, uh, you know, be states people about this and recognize that we have an issue and come together to try to solve it. But I think that, that the 30 percent is a huge issue. Do you think that one of the – if you do lower it to, say, 20 percent or 15 percent, do you think one of the consequences of this is that some of the smaller communities that need that revenue to survive may not have enough revenue to exist as cities anymore and might disincorporate or merge with other cities? You know, I don't know. I mean, that's a good question. Um, but I think, at, at, you know, a core belief of ours ought to be that that shouldn't be a reason why you are in existence – is to sort of be this revenue-generating, you know, machine uh, where you have police officers just sitting out on a road making sure that you maintain the existence. I mean, I think that a lot of smaller municipalities, and I live in one, Glendale. Glendale is 6,000 yeah, people. Yeah, Glendale is not a metropolis Yeah, but and I think that there's, there, there, there are, you know, communities like um, community policing. They like having those services close to home. But we have to be realistic you have, um, particularly in near North County, which, again, that Rock Road Corridor, which is where I grew up, you have a lot of municipalities, some of which, you know, all not all of them, but many of which have their own police forces. Some of them have municipal fire departments. And we, I think we just have to start asking the question, is this the most efficient use of taxpayer dollars? And then we let the solutions flow from that really important question. Mm-hmm. And once we have answers to that, then we can look at it, I think, a little bit further. But I do think, and my hope is that from from this issue that has, you know, turned into hashtag Ferguson and a lot of the, you know, a lot of the issues that I think we're having conversations about now that we didn't before, that some good can come of it. And I do think municipal court reform, it's not the only thing, but I think it is a big thing that we can take a look at and try to find solutions together. And quite frankly, that's what the legislature ought to be doing. I mean, we ought to ask those kinds of tough questions. How amenable will the legislature be since majority of the legislative members are not from the St. Louis area and majority, I 
pretty sure are rural and who kind of see what's going on in Ferguson as something on another planet. So, I mean, how do you persuade them that that this needs to be done or something? Well, I, again, good question. I think what I would liken it to in some ways is the education um, issue that we had last year. You had a, um, you had a precipitating event um, that really galvanized a lot of local legislators, regardless of their party, um, to work together to come up with uh, a solution. And you had um, last, you know, interim and then into the session, all of the regional senators and a lot of state representatives working together to try to figure out on the transfer issue, how can you have reasonable criteria for the receiving districts? And then what kind of opportunities can we provide the kids who live in unaccredited school districts? And I think I'm very proud of the work, even though the governor vetoed it, uh, I'm very proud of the work that we did in a bipartisan way to come up with those solutions. I think that this potentially could work the same way where – and I've reached out and I'm friends with Senator Marie Chappelle Nadal, and she represent a lot, re- represents a lot of the communities that are going to be involved in this discussion with municipal court reform, and we're committed to working together. And I think that's the, it's going to take that kind of you know, leadership for us to work together to try to find solutions and start with the St. Louis regional delegation and then work out from there and let people know – um, all across the state, that this is a is a regional issue, but this is a so this is a problem that needs to be solved, and we and we need their help. Is the transfer input. issue dead, or are you guys going to bring it up in a different form? Um, we, you know, we're meeting as a caucus uh, in the next few days to talk more um, specifically, probably about what agenda items um, we we will pursue. It is my hope and my expectation that that education will continue to be an issue, and I think that you know the challenge for us is that that without any direction whatsoever from the governor about what he would like to see or uh, any leadership that he might take. And it's, and by the way, it is no coincidence in many ways that a lot of these issues that we were dealing with last year on the education debate had to do with the Normandy school district and Ferguson is in the Normandy school district. So these are, you know, these are very broad social issues and it is, um, as you guys know, covering politics, those complex issues, it's not always easy to find common ground and work together. And we did that on the education bill. It is, it's a shame that the governor, in, the, in kind of once we had already worked through all of these uh, various issues and come up, came up with a solution and working with the House, and I was on the conference committee, that the governor just sends out a statement that if it has this in there, he won't sign it, provides no other leadership. And we have not heard a, a peep from him about what he'd be willing to sign or what he wants to, to get done by way of education policy. So I think the legislature will again lead on that and is my hope that the governor will come around and, and be part of that discussion. What, one other legislative thing that comes to mind that you haven't heard much after the election about is Medicaid expansion slash Medicaid reform. And when I say Medicaid reform, I'm putting it in quotes. I'm referring to the things that Representative Jay Barnes and Senator Ryan Sylvie have proposed. Um, do you think that with larger Republican majorities and the fact that one of the biggest uh, critics of Medicaid expansion, Senator Rob Schaff, got reelected, that either one of those things, either straight up Medicaid expansion or maybe changing around Medicaid and then expanding it after that just may not be a, a sell this time around? Yeah, I think Medicaid expansion is very unlikely. Um, I think that uh, what I have heard from my colleagues is a desire to try to reform a system that that many believe is broken, and that that involves Medicaid, you know, reform. The the challenge for us is that it's a take it or leave it approach from the federal government. There are not a lot of um, options, and there's certainly not a lot of flexibility for a state to sort of create its own system to serve 
um, the people it was intended to serve, those who really can't help themselves. And I think there's a desire to try to make that better. I don't think there's much of a desire to expand um, a broken system. And we're going to have, again, more discussion about that once we get into the session. But I do think that, again, in many ways, what happened here in Missouri, um, you can't totally um, pull it away from a very much of a national referendum on Obamacare and President Obama. And Medicaid expansion is certainly a piece of that. Now, um, how would it be, I mean, when Republicans talk about being broken, can you be a bit more specific? Well, one of the challenges right now, and, and the Post-Dispatch even has covered this, um, is people who are eligible, who are trying to sign up, can't even sign up. It's not even serving the people it's intended to serve for right now. We have about you know 800,000 um, Missourians on the Medicaid rolls. You have about you know almost one-sixth of your population on food stamps. And so I think us being a little bit more creative about how the program can be administered is something that that I'd certainly be you know willing to look at I mean I I think that we ought to um, for for people with developmental disabilities we ought to make sure that the system is functioning well for them and people being able to sign up but the the challenge for us is that there's no flexibility is either you you go up to 133 percent of the federal poverty level or nothing Um, and I just don't think there's a desire for the General Assembly at this point to sort of swallow all of Obamacare um, and uh, that, that I don't just th- I don't think that's where Missourians' values are at either. I mean, you've had twice now a referendum with Prop C, and then on the health exchanges where you know you had seventy percent of Missourians rejecting it. And again, that was certainly something that was um, talked about a lot in this election cycle. And again, you know there wasn't a Republican incumbent that lost. So that is not to say that we shouldn't try to work on how you know again we can improve the system but there's just there's not a lot of options right now health exchanges in general without getting into specifics how this one's administered was originally a republican idea uh i mean so and there already been some details on how the more insurance companies are joining it this time do you see the legislature trying to block these changes do you think uh, or is it a matter of just letting the federal government continue to run them in the state well, I think a lot's, a lot's going to be decided with the Supreme Court decision um, where that's the central issue. There's a, there's a question before the Supreme Court now as to whether or not Congress ever intended, if a state did not adopt its own exchange, as to whether or not the federal government could administer that uh, exchange, which is what's happening in Missouri and, and all of the subsidies that, that go with it. So I think that's a big question that's going to be answered by, by the Supreme Court. But again, I, I just think that there are probably, you know, one, for me, one thing, for example, health savings accounts, I think, are very um, positive. You know, people put their own money in initially. Uh, there's a company out in Kansas City, Cerner, that has their own pharmacy. But people, the first $1,500 is their own money. So when they have the, the choice to make between the $80 name brand prescription or the $5 generic, people start making rational economic decisions. The problem with our current health care system is that people are so far removed from that that it's just sort of, you know, insurance is paying for it and there's not a lot of skin in the game. And I think that if we could move more towards that kind of a model, I think we would tackle the cost issue. And that's my biggest objection, that we didn't attack the cost issue before the coverage issue. And that's why I think costs continue to bloom. And one one final point, with the existing Medicaid population, we spend $400 million a year more than we did the year before in general revenue, just for our existing population. That's before you even talk about expansion. So when the governor talks about, you know, education funding or candidates talk about education funding, that money's got to come from somewhere. And we're spending $400 million more every year on our existing um, uh, population without even talking about expansion. I think we need to reform that first. 
All right, I'm going to have to close us off there. Uh, you can read all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at, at CSMcDaniel. Jason, you can be followed on Twitter as well. Jay Rosenbaum. And Joe? Jay Manis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And Senator? I'm at Eric underscore Schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-T-T. The underscore is important. Otherwise, I think you're confused with the Google Eric Schmidt, right? Yeah. My bank account is never confused with this. <laughs> <but, yeah. laughs> we'll be back next week. Until then, so long.